You're listening to Comedy Central. Probably one of the biggest surprises they say apparently of the Winter Olympics is that Norway is leading the medals table. Everyone was thinking it's gonna be America or China or like Canada and then like Norway is crushing it. And then I went to the medals table and I looked at the events and I was like, guys, this is, it's unfair. Like forget doping, Norway shouldn't be in the Winter Olympics because all the shit they're doing is like what Norwegians consider normal life. Like they're not like competing, you know what I mean? They'll just be like, oh, what event was this? Oh yeah, this is where like the people have to go cross country on skis. Yeah, that's just Tuesday in Norway. I bet at the end of the race, they're like, well done, gold medal. And it's like, what? I was just going to school. Coming to you from the heart of Times Square in New York City, the only city in America. It's The Daily Show, ears edition. Tonight, Prince Andrew pays up. Willie Ori and Jessica Kingdon. This is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to The Daily Show. I'm Trevor Noah. Let's jump straight into today's headlines. We kick things off with the news about the British royal family. The only people who think chess is a representative game. Look, there's me, and there's you, and there's the people who pay us. <laughs> Yesterday marked Queen Elizabeth's 70th year on the throne, making her the longest serving monarch in British history, which must be nice for all of those people who've been shouting, long live the queen. Yeah, cause now they can be like, yeah, you see, we did that. Now, as part of the anniversary observance, the family has announced that if and when Queen Elizabeth dies and her son Charles becomes king, his wife Camilla will be crowned alongside him as queen. And I don't know if you remember, but when Camilla first started dating Charles, people said that she could never be queen because their relationship started as an affair. So this is huge, this is a huge, huge deal. And I also think it's the right move because can you imagine how awkward it was gonna be otherwise if every time Charles and Camilla walked in a room and the royal announcer would be like, presenting the King of England and presenting uh, his side piece. But while I'm sure the royals would love to be focusing on the future of the family, unfortunately, they've been forced to deal with a scandal from their past. You see, for decades, Elizabeth's second son, Prince Andrew, he was rolling deep with Jeffrey Epstein. And after years of fighting allegations that he had done anything wrong, it looks like he's finally throwing in the towel. Tonight, Prince Andrew dramatically averting a court battle, not admitting liability, but not clearing his name. Virginia Dufry claimed she was sexually assaulted by the prince when she was 17 years old, trafficked by Epstein. The 61-year-old prince will pay his accuser, Virginia Dufry, a reported $10 million and make a substantial donation to her charity in support of victims' rights. Of course, questions saying, is it Prince Andrew's money? We know that he's sold his Swiss ski chalet reputedly for about 18 million but many people saying the queen is helping to foot the bill yeah that's right after years of fighting prince andrew has finally settled with virginia jufre and although it's not perfect justice i mean it is something you know to be honest i almost feel like this guy got off easy because yeah it is 10 million dollars but you're from the royal family think about it 10 million dollars is like one jewel from one of their crowns and this has got to suck for the queen. Like imagine having to use the money that you earned to, well, I guess you didn't like earn it, but I mean, imagine like working hard your whole life. Oh, well, I mean, she doesn't really work. Um, you, you get what I'm saying, you get what I'm saying. The point is, 
The queen didn't get into the royal business to do stuff like this, right? She got into it to steal spices from India. It's about that life. And I can tell you now, this is probably where she misses the days when she could just chop off people's heads, you know? Because back in the day, with this thing happening with Andrew, the queen would have just been like, Andrew, I dropped my contact lens. Would you bend down and pick it up? Where, mommy? <laughs> 10 million saved. Oh, and by the way, the next time your mom complains about you asking her for rent money, you just show her the story and remind her, it could be way worse. But let's move on. If you're tired of the same old, same old dating app scene, where you swipe right on the cute guy, he swindles you out of thousands of dollars, blah, 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 then good news. Tinder is now offering a blind date feature on the app. Yeah, because usually when you're scrolling through people, you first see their picture, right? And then you decide right away whether you're too good looking for them or they're too good looking for you. But now, Tinder is just gonna ask you questions. And then what they're gonna do is they're gonna match you with someone based on your responses. And then you have a chat with them. And then if you both like each other, Tinder will show you their pictures, which is great. Because if they stop talking to you at that point, then you know immediately that you're ugly. And you know, it's so funny how tech companies came out like they're the future. They're gonna show us new things. But then as time goes on, they seem to invent stuff that already exists. Like blind dates. It's the future of dating. No, people in the middle ages were like, all our dates are blind. And I'm sorry, but you can't really recreate blind dates unless you also recreate the part where your mutual friend tries to talk the other person up whilst also avoiding their faults. That's a key part of blind dates. Yeah, he's like super good at cooking and he loves to read. Interesting, so does he have a job? As I said, he loves to read. Eh? I also have to mention that this blind dating scheme that Tinder's running, this is discriminatory towards hot, dumb, boring people. You realize you're taking away their greatest assets. People with good personalities, they're gonna do fine in this situation. They can meet people in person, they can charm them. All some people have is a six pack. They don't even know that they have a six pack because they can't count that high. All right, but let's move on to a story coming from my home country, South Africa. Yeah, it's not the most creatively named country, but you always know where to find us. It's been almost 10 years since the passing of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Mandela. And for those of you who don't know, Nelson Mandela was basically the Martin Luther King of our Harriet Tubmans. And everywhere you go in South Africa, there are reminders of how great he is. Like there are statues, uh, there are bridges named after him. There's whole neighborhoods that bear his name. But now there's a new fancier way for people who wanna celebrate his legacy. The former home of Nelson Mandela is now a luxury hotel. It's called Sanctuary Mandela, and it was Mandela's first home in Johannesburg after being released from 27 years in prison. South Africa's first black president lived there for six years. It now can host 18 guests, and 18 guests rather, and is adorned with Mandela memorabilia. Even Madiba's former cook is on staff there helping to prepare meals. Rooms range from $250 to as much as $1,000 a night. Yeah, that's right. Nelson Mandela's old house has been turned into a luxury hotel. And I mean, I guess this is just the fate of every historic building now, right? Because if you think about it, half of the old buildings around the world are now either a bank, an Apple store, or a CVS. That's it. I wouldn't be shocked if in like 100 years, the White House is gonna be turned into Jeff Bezos' dog's weekend place. Now. Some people think 
that it doesn't make sense for the home of the man who fought inequality to be turned into a luxury hotel. But it does. It actually does. And it really does if you remember one of Mandela's most famous quotes when he said, Do not judge me by the color of my skin, but rather judge me by the thread count of these Egyptian cotton sheets falling out of control. It was a powerful speech. We cried that day. (laughs) We cried that day. Also, you know, when you're staying at the Nelson Mandela Hotel, good luck fighting the minibar charges that you think are unfair. You're just gonna be at the front desk like, hi, excuse me, I think I was unfairly charged for a bag of pistachios. Madam, let me tell you about unfair charges. So yeah, look, this is gonna come with its pros and its cons. People are gonna be for it and against it. And I guess it will be good for the people who work there and maybe some of the community, but you gotta admit, man, at the same time, it does feel a little disrespectful for everything that Nelson Mandela went through, you know? He's gonna pay some money and you can sleep in his house? You know what he had to do to get to that house? You know what they should do? They should should say for every night that you stay in the hotel, you should also have to spend a night in an apartheid prison. Yeah, now you're getting the full experience. You know, I actually hope that they do this with African dictator homes too. Cause like, yeah, Mandela had a nice house, but forget him, man. African dictators, those dudes lived Lavish. They should make that an experience. Can you imagine soaking in Idi Amin's jacuzzi, chilling on his giant couch, woo, dressing up in the skin of his enemies? Talk about a honeymoon. You like this, baby? All right, finally, let's move on to some news from the world of religion. Since we were young, many of us have been taught the same story, right? Be good, pray every day, and you'll get into heaven. What your grandmother probably didn't mention is that a paperwork issue could send you to hell. A Catholic priest in Arizona has resigned because of a mistake the church says he's been making for more than 20 years. During thousands of baptisms, he used the phrase, we baptize instead of I baptize. And the Vatican says that one word change makes all the baptisms he performed invalid. The priest has apologized and again, resigned. Wait, wait, I'm sorry, what? All the baptisms are invalid because of one word? No, one word? This is like the worst thing a Catholic priest has ever done. But for real, people, I cannot believe that the Vatican is gonna say all of these baptisms, all of them, like what, 2,000 are invalid? Just because the priest said we instead of I. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm glad to hear that the Catholic Church cares about people's pronouns, but this seems like a minor mistake to me. You know, like, I would understand if the priest accidentally cleansed their souls in white claw, that I would get, but this doesn't seem like a huge deal. And what's gonna happen to all the people who weren't actually baptized? What happens to them now, huh? Are they gonna go to hell for someone else's mistake? That's so unfair. Everyone else who gets to go to hell goes there because they got to have some fun first, you know? Now they're all gonna be down in the fire pits like, well, I'm being burned forever, but it was worth it for the orgies. Ha <laughs> ha, what are you in for, man? My priest made a typo. Oh, sure, whatever. <laughs> you probably killed some puppies or something, you sick f- Yo, let's torture this guy extra hard. So, no, wait, sorry, sorry, hold on. I'm hearing from my producers that, well, that, that can't be right. We have an interview with God himself? Is that even possible? How, uh, all right, can we, can we patch him in? Yeah, yeah, turn on the webcam. Oh my Lord. Hey, hey, Trevor, it's me, God. God indeed, baby, how you been? Well, this is amazing. 
Garb, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Hey, baby, happy to be here. Look, we gotta make this quick though. I'm working on creating a new animal. It's like a horse, but it's got flippers and it's got fangs. I gave it one wing. Ooh, boy, it's gonna mess you all up. Oh God, I have so many questions. First, first of all, I, I didn't know that this is how you look. Oh no, this, this is just how I look to you. I don't look like this when I'm talking to white folks. I want to surprise them when they get here. <laughs> oh man, God, I, I just, oh, oh, I also have another question. And this is a little embarrassing. No, but... I'm not helping you with Wordle. How did you know that that was what I was going to ask? Tired, tired of you asking about Wordle. You tweet about Wordle all the time. You need to get a life, man. Yeah, but the New York Times made the words. Anyway, God, let's talk about the issue at hand. What's your position on this priest in Arizona who's been messing up baptisms? I'm gonna be honest, I, I got no idea what you're talking about. Uh, there's a priest in Arizona who said the wrong word and now uh -huh. the Vatican is all upset and they're saying that the people might be going to hell now. You, you haven't heard about this? No, man. I don't pay half as much attention to earth as y'all think I do. I'm having too much fun. Look at me, I'm in heaven. We got Prince, Whitney Houston, George Michael. Every day up here is a Super Bowl halftime show. Wait, hold, so hold, you're saying that you're not really focused Earth. on every single thing that's going on down here? No, I ain't worried about everything going on. Do you realize how many worlds I've created? I can't keep track of every single one. You think Shonda Rhimes know what's going on in every single one of her TV shows. She got the firefighter show, she got the doctor show, she got the one where everybody having sex in the 1700s. It's impossible to keep track of. Impossible. I mean, that makes sense, but are you saying that even if this priest messed up the baptisms, you, you would still accept these people into heaven? That's right. People don't sweat the small stuff. Look, this is all you got to do, Trevor. All you got to do to get into heaven is be a good person. I just want people up here who aren't gonna ruin the party, all right? Now, if you'll excuse me, it's trivia night, and Alex Trebek is on my team. Trebek, baby, let's get these Bitcoins. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Man, heaven sounds like a lot of fun. I can't wait to see it one day. This is... Oh, don't worry. You're going to see it real soon. Wait, what? What, what is... How, how soon? What does that mean? Uh, what is that? You know what? Let's take a quick break so I can figure out what that meant. And after the break, I'm going to be talking to Willie O'Ree, the first black hockey player ever. You don't want to miss it. When he said soon, do you think that was a threat or do you think it was an invitation? Do you you turn out this webcam. Oh, button. God, you have to press the, no, it didn't, if you, it's on the top, top right. Or the top right of the, if it's, it's a touch screen, you gotta hit the top right. Hang on, hang on. No, it's a. Leave meeting. No, you're still here. Lord, you, you Leave haven't left. Meeting. Welcome back to The Daily Show. My first guest tonight is a hockey legend by the name of Willie O'Ree. He integrated the sport of hockey by becoming the first black player to compete in the NHL in 1958, for which he will be awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. Making sports history in hockey as Jackie Robinson did in baseball, Willie O'Ree of the Boston Bruins, a native of Fredericton, New Brunswick, is the first Negro to play in the National Hockey League. In his first time out, his team won against the Montreal Canadiens. In the Bruins dressing room after the game, Gord Sinclair Jr. of CFCF pressed through the crowd for this interview. It must be quite an exciting thing, isn't it, to get into an NHL game for the Boston Bruins. What do you feel about it, uh, Willie? Anything unusual? No, it was the greatest thrill of my life, I believe. I'll always remember this day. We'll always remember this day. Mr. Willie O'Ree, welcome to The Daily Show. Thank you very much. It certainly is a pleasure to be here. 
Oh, the pleasure's all mine. I mean, I'm talking to uh, a man who's a legend on so many counts. I mean, you, you, you're, you're a legend because of what you did for the sport of hockey. Uh, you're a legend because you were the first black player in the NHL. And for me, you are a legend because you are a black person who chose to play on the ice. I, I don't meet many black people who willingly go to the cold, Mr. Ori. So uh, you're, a re- you're a legend personally for me <laughs> as an African. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you. Thank you, sir. Um, let's talk a little bit about your journey. You know, it, it, it wasn't anything that anybody had done before. You, you know, you talk about this in your life and how uh, you had a dream. You said, I want to play in the NHL. I want to be a professional hockey player. Nobody had done it. Nobody thought anybody could do it. And yet you set your mind to it. I'd love to know how you, you had this idea of doing something that had never been done before with the clarity that you had. Well, when I was 14 years of age, I decided I wanted to become a professional hockey player and then hopefully one day in the, uh, play in the National Hockey League. And uh, I have to give credit to my older brother, who was not only my brother and my friend, but he was my mentor. And he taught me a lot of things that I would need to know. So I started playing organized hockey. Uh, and at 14, I uh, left my hometown to go up to uh, Quebec, Canada to play junior, junior hockey with the um, Quebec Frontenacs. Uh, played there that uh, one year, and then I went and played uh, in Kitchener, Ontario, the second year, and that's when I had uh, an unfortunate accident. You know, none of the players wore any helmets, no face shields, no cages, and um, I was struck in the right eye with a puck and lost 97% vision in my right eye. And wow. The, doc- the doctor told me I'd never play hockey again, but uh, I kept it a secret and um, turned, turned pro in 1956 and was able to play 21 years with one eye. Wait, 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 let's, okay. Now we, now we need to add an extra layer of legend to the story. You lost some of your vision and the doctor said that you were legally blind. You keep this a secret and then you go on to play. I, I, don't, I don't even understand how that's possible. I can't follow the puck. I've been to hockey games. I love watching hockey games, but it's like, I can't follow the puck. But you're telling me you were a professional player who was legally blind. I don't understand how you did this. Well, you know, um... <clears throat> I, when I went to the hospital and um, I was in my recovery room and the doctor said, Mr. O'Ree, he says, you're going to be blind and you'll never play hockey again. Well, the two goals that I had set for myself, well, seemingly were gone. But I got out of the hospital and um, within the next five uh, weeks, I'm back on the ice uh, practicing and playing. Now, I'm a left-hand shot and playing left wing, but to compensate, I, I had to turn my head all the way around to the right to pick the puck and pick the play up and look over my right shoulder. Wow. And consequently, I was overskating the puck and missing the net. And I just said, Willie, forget about what you can't see and concentrate on what you can see. So the season ends and uh, I go back to my hometown and I kept mm-hmm. my fingers crossed that I'd be contacted by a professional team. And uh, I waited and waited. And finally, I got a call from Punch Emlek, who was the coach and general manager of the Quebec Aces, the Quebec uh, professional team up in Quebec City. So to make a long story short, I go to training camp. I make the team. I don't tell them that I'm blind. I don't have a, an eye exam. So I says, well, if I don't take an eye exam, just, just play. And we won the championship that year. So that's what gave me the extra confidence that I needed. I said, <laughs> I said. Oh, man. I mean, that's, yeah. If, 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 if anything qualifies somebody to be a legend, I, I think that, that's, that story makes it. Uh, um, let's talk about the sport itself. You know, you talked about back then what it was like being in, in the league as the first and only black player. You, you had teammates who supported you. You had fans who cheered for you. But there were also the fans who really could only think of the color of your skin as the reason that they didn't like you. You know, they were, they were, they were shouting slurs at you on the ice or they were shouting slurs at you from, from the stands. 
I'd love to know how you blocked out that noise. You know, I mean, that surely affects you as a human being, but you found a way to persevere. Was, was that something you had just grown up with in your family or did you put your head down and like, how did you do that? And I just put my head down. I was called the N-word uh, every time I stepped on the ice by players on the opposition, by fans in the stands. If I had a penalty and I went in the penalty box, I could hear them saying the N-word, but I just blocked it out. Thanks to my older brother, again, and he told me, Willie, if they can't accept you for the individual that you are, because you have the skills and the ability to play in the league at this particular time, he said, forget about everything else. He said, just go out, stay focused on your goal and work hard. And basically, that's what I did. But I mean, I, it, it, was, it was really rough at, at, the, at the beginning, Trevor. It, it really was. But finally, I gained the respect the, of the players and the, oppos- and the, and the fans. Man, I, can, I, I honestly can't even imagine how hard it must have been, you know, being in that world. Um, there, there are over 100 black players, you know, who have now played in the NHL. Many of them yeah. have either talked about your story or they've talked about your journey in some way inspiring them. But they've also talked about how difficult it can be being the only black player on a team, you know, the only black player who's representing a, a, a franchise. You know, were there any tips that you gave to any of these players or were there any tips that you learned that would help you not almost carry the entire burden of being the only black player on a team? You know, being able to fail for Willie or being able to succeed for Willie and not always worrying that it, you know, it it represents all of blackness at the same time, which it did and didn't. Well, I met a lot of the black players and the players of color that are playing in the the league at the present time. And, you know, some of them that, that I have met, they said, Willie... I just can't imagine what you had to go through to make it possible for players like me to play in the league. He says, I just, I have the highest respect and the highest admiration for you. He said, what you, what you had to do, you must have had to turn your cheek a thousand times. And I said, I just stayed, I stayed focused on what I wanted to do. I, I worked hard and I, I told myself I'm good enough to play in the league and uh, just, just work hard and uh, stay confident. Let's talk a little bit about the future. You know, you, we're celebrating you and you've been celebrated for such a long time as being not just part of black history, but part of also the NHL's history. You have now been an ambassador for the uh, National Hockey League, getting black players into it, players of color. You know, kids who would have never thought that this could be their sport or maybe they wanted to get into it, but couldn't. It's an expensive sport to get into you. You know, your skates and, and, and all the equipment that you need to, to be part of, it sometimes becomes a bigger barrier than even the color of your skin. When you're, when you're meeting with new kids and you, you're talking to these children who want to join in, how do you inspire them to get into a sport that sometimes might be just out of their reach? Well, we have, uh, we have uh, organized programs all over North America. And uh, when I first started, um, there were approximately five. We have about 36 now. And, and before the pandemic, I was traveling around to these cities and uh, uh, talking to the uh, elementary schools, middle schools, junior high, high schools, um, Boys and Girls Clubs, uh, YMYWCAs, Juvenile Detention Facilities, to let them know that there is a sport that they can play if they want to. And uh, all you have to do is come to the rink and uh, we'll, we'll learn you how to skate. And uh, if, you, if you follow, we'll get you on an organized, an organized team where you're able to, uh, able to play. I mean, uh, hockey's a fun sport, and I, but I tell these kids, if you're not having fun, don't play it. Uh, find another sport. <laughs> but uh, I, can, I can honestly say that um, the clinics that I've conducted over the years, once I get these boys and girls on the ice, I've not had one boy or girl come up and say, oh, Mr. Rhea, I don't like wow. this. I'm not coming back. So it, it's a nice feeling to reach out and, even, and just touch one individual and make a difference in their life. 
Well, that's why you are who you are. That's why you are receiving not just the medal, but uh, all the praise. And we celebrate you. Thank you so much, um, Mr. Willie O'Ree. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for what you've done. And uh, thank you for the joy that you've brought to the sport and to the world. We appreciate you. All right, thank don't you. go away. Because after the break, I'm going to be chatting to Jessica Kingdon, who's made a documentary that takes us into China and shows us what some of their challenges are that we may not know about. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is filmmaker Jessica Kingdon. She's here to talk about Ascension, her Oscar-nominated documentary that examines the contemporary Chinese dream. Jessica Kingdon, welcome to The Daily Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a complete honor to be here. Wait, let's talk about the film. It's very seldom that you see China, and it's very seldom that you see China not from China's perspective and not from, like, the West perspective, but just in China. So let's start with that. How on earth do you get to make a documentary in China in all the places that you got to make the documentary? Because the film itself is not politically, overtly political, yeah. and we're not filming in any, um, quote-unquote, sensitive areas. Right. So we were able to be extremely straightforward about what we were doing, and a lot of it was just simply asking these locations, hey, we're an independent American documentary film crew coming to make a film wow. about China's economic rise. Can we come and film in your factory? Can we come and film in your manor school, et cetera? Surprisingly, the thing that people were worried about is not something I anticipated. A lot of factory managers um, were worried that we were going to scam them and try to get money out of them. In what like way? to hit them up with a bill for appearing in our movie later on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Wait, are you being amazing. serious? I'm dead serious. Another suspicion that happened was in the textile man, one of the textile manufacturing companies. He thought that we were there trying from a corporation trying to um, take the technology secret. You were trying to steal their tech yeah. and then go and make your own textile. It, exactly. It, 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 it feels like what also makes this film different is you're not telling us anything. You're just showing us things. You know, there's no one who's narrating. There's nobody who's giving you their opinion. You see, like, you know, low-income workers. We see the middling class that's burgeoning. And then we see, like, wealthy Chinese people. You even take us into um, a, a factory that is making very advanced um, sex dolls. When you were making the film, weren't you ever tempted to step in and go like, this is what this means? Or, or you, were you happy for us, the viewer, to just watch for ourselves and decide? I don't think I could even say what it means, <laughs> to be honest with you. I mean, I think there's so many meanings that are, can be found within that one clip even. Mm -hmm. But like you said, something that struck me about this place was the paradox of it, where on one hand, it seems like one of the most exploitative factories. Since right. There are these um, replicas of bodies literally made for exploitation. But on the other hand, the women are handling the dolls and also uh, working together with a certain type of tenderness that I found very touching. And the conversations that they're having with one another, too, are um, almost accidentally poetic sometimes. And so I found that really beautiful. And um, that was a paradox that I was really trying to lean into and, and look for and, mm -hmm. and draw out. And it wasn't something that I had to go in and try to manufacture. It was just something that was already there. And I think a lot of this type of filmmaking is about the patience to sort of sit with these oh, sort of moments yes. and allow them to, to emerge instead of trying to go and um, you know, prove a certain point. It's wonderful to just see just a world happening, but in a way where it doesn't feel, A, like you said, manufactured, but also with something is happening. You know, there's a lot of stories that happen in how people live. 
And, and it, it was nice to watch that in the documentary, just see people living, but then also there's a story being told by how the people live. Right. It's just the art of, of observing and seeing what comes up. Yeah. No, you're, you're a better filmmaker yeah. than I'd ever be. I'd always be tempted to, like, jump in. Like, I was very tempted a lot of the times. <laughs> it took a lot of discipline. Just, you like, didn't stay... see the outtakes. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. okay, 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 okay. You know, the China that I had known for so many years was just all industrial and very... And, and in this documentary, we start to see a new world that is forming where mm -hmm. people are now learning how to be influencers mm -hmm. and, and the culture is changing. Would it be safe to say that there's almost now the Chinese dream, like the American dream, where people are going, we want to ascend in how we live, earn, create? There's a lot of similarities with the Chinese dream and the American dream. I mean, the one thing that they both have in common is this idea, uh, this quest for upward mobility and this belief in this system that you'll be rewarded materially for your hard work and, you know, are able to work yourself up to a middle class lifestyle, which, mm. of course, we know is not true for everyone. Um, but within China, I, I found that it was just interesting to see how a lot of it mirrors American-style capitalism as well. There's so many different parallels that we wouldn't necessarily see on the surface, but if you kind of look closer, you see a lot of it's echoed with one another. One of my favorite moments in the documentary is where you are in the factory where, there are, where they're making the Donald Trump Make America Great Again hats. They're like, they're making the MAGA hats. But you saw them making the Keep America Great and you, you, thought, you thought they were messing up. Like, you thought they had totally messed up the, 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 the slogan. That's right. This was um, during Trump's re-election campaign. The manager told us, oh, you know, all of the uh, MAGA hats are gone because they were bought out by the Canadians. Not something I would have expected, <laughs> but okay, sure, Canada, uh, MAGA hats. Um, but instead, hey, we're actually making um, Keep America Great um, scarves. And I thought that that was kind of maybe a mistake or yeah. a mistranslation or something, but we shot it anyway. And they said, no, no, this is his um, new campaign slogan. And sure enough, six months later or whatever, we were seeing it everywhere. So there's a saying that business people in Iwu, the city where we were shooting, are ahead of the curve, ahead of the political trends, because they're kind of like the base of manufacturing where all of these global issues first come. Wow. Yeah. I definitely want to go. I just want to see what my future is. Yeah. What shirts are they making about me? Exactly. What free Trevor Noah? I'm, wait, I'm going to be in prison? Um, <laughs> Jessica, congratulations again on the Oscar nomination. And um, thank you for making, oh, really, one of the most fascinating documentaries out. Oh, thank you so much. This has been an absolute honor. All right, people, Jessica's documentary, Ascension, is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Trust me, you want to watch it. It's going to teach you so much. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight, but before we go, in honor of Black History Month, The Daily Show's monochrome collection is getting an update with a brand new mug. Now, 100% of Paramount's proceeds will be donated to the National Black Arts Festival, which supports art and artists of African descent. So if you wanna support the National Black Arts Festival and grab your very own Daily Show mug, all you gotta do is scan the QR code or head to the link below. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, get your vaccine, and remember, if you're not sure that your baptism went through, you better find yourself a bird bath and dunk your head just to be safe. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and stream full episodes anytime on Paramount+. Plus. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 